0: You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Che. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. So let's go over the basics here. The date written, 1375 B.C. 1375 B.C. approximately. Time period is 1400 to 1375 BC. Who do you think the author is? Probably. I mean, his name is across it. That's a hint. Um, Probably is Joshua. There is first person narrative in the book. Um, Also, the options other than Joshua are scribes that are 400 and 500 years later. Well, at one point in Joshua, it says Rahab was among Israel and is still alive to this day. So unless Rahab lived a very long life, it was written a lot sooner than those other options would give. Uh, But Joshua does die at the end of the book. And so there's somebody else that is probably gonna write as well. It could be his son, but most of the people think it is Eleazar, which is the priest. Um, that, um, uh, I'm sorry, um, and it's not the Eliezer that you're thinking of, not not the priest, but uh, another scribe uh, during that time. Uh, the audience is the nation of Israel, and this is the first book of the historical books. So we just finished with the first five books, the Pentateuch, or as the Hebrews call it, the Torah, the books of the law, and now we're moving into the books of history, which is going to be from Joshua to Esther. And Joshua is going to pick up right where Deuteronomy leads off. So let's read verse 1 of chapter 1 through verse 3. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, because he has passed away, therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, "...unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you as I said to Moses." So although God's people may die, his promises and his work goes on. And it's going to go on through Joshua. And this book contains the story of how God fulfills his promise to bring Israel into the land of Canaan. And it can be divided into these four sections. We're going to have chapters 1 through 5. I'll give you the sections first. Chapters 1 through 5, 6 through 12, 13 through 21, and 22 through 24. In the first section, 1 through 5, it's all about entering Canaan. 6 through 12 is about conquering Canaan, so entering and conquering. Chapters 13 through 21 is about dividing Canaan. And then the last three chapters is about settling Canaan. So entering, conquering, dividing, settling. Repeating. Okay, so this book is filled with stories that on the surface really just seem to be informational. And you can read Joshua not giving a lot of attention to maybe the question, why are these stories in? And it's an entertaining book. It is a powerfully entertaining book. Uh, But I want you to avoid the mistake of thinking, as Joshua was writing, he was thinking, oh, that's a cool story. I'll put that one in there. And there are certainly some cool stories in there. But... The stories of victory and military strategy and miracles, they all center around a theme of Israel possessing the promised land, but the design of the whole book is really meant to bring out three truths, and those three truths are really hit home in the last two chapters, chapter 23 and 24. But here are those three truths. Truth number one, God keeps his promises. Right, amen. Amen. yeah yes sir amen God keeps his promises we say amen to that he keeps his promises of good and blessing he keeps his promises of evil and cursing yeah. for disobedience but God keeps his promises right. Truth number two God's promises must be possessed. God's promises must be possessed. You can think of promises right now in the Bible that are if-then promises. When Jesus is about to resurrect Lazarus from the dead, and Mary says right before, because Martha says it, and then Mary says it, it's been four days, he stinks. He's dead, it's too late now. And he says, didn't I tell you if you believed, then you would see the glory of God. So, God's promises of blessing must be possessed. God's promises of even evil and cursing must be possessed. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, God's promises are contingent upon obedience, upon faith, upon trust, upon a lot of different things, right? So, that's truth number three. God's promises are not possessed By worldly strength, they're not possessed by worldly wisdom, they are possessed by obedience to his commands. And those are the three truths of Joshua. And when we get to 23 and 24, we're really gonna spend a lot of time there applying it to our life and also showing how that makes everything fit perfectly into the story into the biblical timeline so far. So remember those three truths: God keeps his promises. God's promises must be possessed. Let me put it this way. God is going to be faithful to do his part, but we have to be faithful to do our part. Yeah. Right? right. Okay? And then number three, God's promises are not possessed by worldly strength or wisdom, but by obedience to his commands. And in chapter one, we see an immediate example of this. Where God, in verse one through nine, tells Joshua it's time to possess the land, and he promises Joshua four things. He says, every place that you tread upon in Canaan, I'm going to give to you. It's promise number one. Number two, I'm going to be with you. He said, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Number three, he says, no enemy is going to stand before you. And number four, he says, I promise you, Joshua, you yourself are going to see my promise fulfilled because you are going to be the one who divides the promised land to the promised people. But these promises required Joshua to do his part. Joshua must be strong and very courageous, God tells him. You must be strong and very courageous, not to lead the Israelites, not to uh, fight his enemies, but look at what God says in verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do. Observe to do all that is according to the law. How about in verse 8? This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for what? For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. So if Joshua would meditate and obey what God's law commanded, then his way would be prosperous. Then his way would have good success. And look in verse 9. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. What is that saying? Well, if Joshua was not successful in this conquest It would only be because he failed to do his part to obey, and not because God did not do his part to be faithful. So in uh, the end of the chapter, Joshua tells the people what God told him. It's time for us to go. It's time for us to possess the land. He gives a specific instruction to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, because remember, they had already gained their inheritance on the east side of Jordan, And the contingency of that was even though you already have your inheritance on the east side of Jordan, you're going to come over with us, fight the battles, help your brethren settle their land. Once that is done, then you can go back over. So now that it is time to start fighting, he wants to make sure Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, half tribe of Manasseh, aren't just going to say, well, we already have our part, see you later. So he calls them out um, specifically. In chapter 2, we're going to see the first major encounter between an Israelite and a Canaanite. And it's going to give us just a little bit of a glimpse into the disparity between these people. Uh, Just how different their culture was. How uh, strange it would be the culture shock that was going to come as far as being in Canaan. Think about this with me. If I were to come up to you and say, I have a piece of property brother Haven that I want to give to you. Okay. And it's, it's just yours. I promise it to you. When you get there, you're not going to expect other people living there, right? But what is God saying? No, hey, it's promised to you, but you have to obey. You have to obey to remove those people, right? He's giving an opportunity to obey. We ask, well, why didn't he just remove the Canaanites in the first place? Well, that's the same question of why did God put the tree of knowledge and good and evil in the garden of Eden and place because God wanted to see his people make a decision make a choice to serve him and to obey him so that they could get his promises so in chapter 2 again it just gives us a little glimpse into the wickedness of Canaan the social norms of Canaan the first person that they meet is a lady named Rahab and Rahab is a harlot and some people try to to redefine that oh it just meant that she was a hotel owner no She was who the Bible says that she was. And this tells you it was kind of common back then. Uh, I mean, she wasn't tucked in a back alley somewhere. She was living out in the open on top of the wall of Jericho. And then, so when you see Rahab's profession, and then you see Rahab's lie, how she covers up the fact that the spies are there, it it shows you the frowardness of Canaan. I mean, they just didn't even think about it. It was second nature for them to lie. It was not a big deal for her, uh, for her situation. Uh, her testimony that she gives to them shows Canaan's fear. So first of all, we see Canaan's forwardness, then we see Canaan's fear. And she just comes straight out and says, we have, we've heard all that the Lord has done, especially against Sihon, the king of the Amorites. I mean, that was a big army, and you guys wiped them out. We've heard about it all. It's a good thing you're on the other side of Jordan, but the fact that you're here, uh, everybody knows about it. OK? And we are scared to death because of it. Then her request showed her personal faith. She says, "Because I know, the only reason that you have seen that victory is because God is the Lord. The, the Lord, God of the Israelites, He is the Lord." So I am asking when you come over and when he gives you this land, just spare me and my family because of kindness that I showed to you. She had personal faith. But then they come back and they ask her to show some practical faith. You're going to put this scarlet thread in the window and do it. They said, we're going to be back in three days. In three days, we're going to be back. And when you see us coming in, you hang the scarlet thread in the window because if you don't, we're quit of this vow. She doesn't wait a second. As soon as they leave, she puts it in. She wants to show her faith. Uh, So then chapter three, uh, that reminds me, Brother Rusty, you preached uh, the other day on prayer, purpose, and praise. And what does the Bible say in Psalm chapter forty? When God's people just do what they are supposed to do. Other people see, other people fear, and other people trust. And look what happened to Rahab. Because God's people were obeying, and God was able to fulfill his promises and give victory, the heathen start seeing, fearing, and trusting the blessing that God has given to this nation of being a holy people, a peculiar people, a nation where all other nations will be blessed because of their testimony. It's working. It's working. Uh, It's not going to work with the majority of the Canaanites, but it's working with Rahab. Okay. So chapter three, the Israelites cross over the overflowing Jordan river skeptic Not the inch-high Jordan River overflowing its banks, verse 15 says. Um, So they cross over that, and a key verse is chapter 3, verse 7. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. God is purposefully setting forward Joshua like Moses, like a new Moses. In the fact that he called him just like he called Moses. In the fact that he sent spies over just like Moses sent spies over. Uh, In the fact that uh, Joshua leads a crossing of Jordan just like Moses led a crossing of the Red Sea. And in verse 7 he says, I'm going to magnify thee. Now, when you, uh, uh, Brother Hibbets, we were just talking about the glasses that you wear, they magnify things, okay? So the glasses that you're wearing are not actually making the text in your Bible bigger, but it makes it appear bigger than it really is. And God is telling Joshua, if you just keep obeying, if you are strong and courageous to obey and observe to do what I tell you to do, I'm not going to make you any bigger than you are, but I'll make it seem like you are. The people are going to see you as a leader. They're going to see you stronger than you really are and wiser than you really are and more of a leader than you really are because I'm going to magnify you. What a promise. Chapter four, the Israelites reach the other side of Jordan and God instructs Joshua to construct two piles of stones. One is going to be right in the midst of the river Jordan. Uh, It's going to be covered by water, but they know it's going to be there, and it's right where the priests are going to stand in the midst of Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant as all the people pass over. And then on the west side of Jordan, there's going to be another altar of 12 stones, and it's going to be for a sign. Look in verse 6. That this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? And then look at verse 21. He spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, say, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us, until we were gone over. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. So again, the previous generation had made really two major mistakes. First of all, they forgot God, is what the Bible says. And especially in the song that they sing in Deuteronomy chapter 32, they forgot God. Yeah. But then another part of that was they failed to teach the next generation what God had done for them. And this is going to make it hard to do that what child isn't going to see a pile of rocks and want to play around it and then what child that isn't playing around the pile of rocks is going to go up to dad and say dad what do these mean and what is god telling us he's trying to tell us the lessons of the past must be kept for the future or you're going to have to learn those lessons again which by the way If Israel just would have obeyed the first time they were at Kadesh Barnea, there would be no numbers. There would be no book of numbers. It would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Joshua. So no numbers in Deuteronomy. Numbers in Deuteronomy is there because of failure to obey. And that leads perfectly into chapter 5. So the first thing we're told of is that when they cross over this swollen river, I mean, that was the Canaanites' protection. That was their moat. Yeah, there's a big army on the other side, but Jordan's there. Now, suddenly, they're on this side. Okay? And immediately, the Bible says in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1, I, that their hearts melt. There's no more spirit left in them. Okay? Now, Joshua was a brilliant, brilliant military leader. I mean, God gave him his military mind. Joshua's attack against AI is still mentioned in modern warfare texts. Joshua was a general, a, a really good general. Why am I saying that? Well, the majority of military leaders would tell you, you attack now. You attack now while you have somewhat of the element of surprise, when their morale is very low, when your morale is really high. This is when you attack when you know that they are running in fear. But we see in verse number two, God has a different plan. At that time, no attack, God says, I want you to do two things. I want you to circumcise all the men and I want you to follow the Passover. I want you to keep the Passover. Those are the two things that I want you to do. Now remember, the previous generation's sign that they were supposed to tell their kids about was the sign of circumcision. And what we're going to find out here is that the entire time they were in the wilderness, they didn't practice it one time. Never told their kids about it. Never, never told them about the Passover. Never, never brought up an opportunity for a child to ask, why are we doing this? Yeah. Never. So God is bringing out, before you go any further, it's time to obey. Okay, so verse 4 through 12, again, explains that they didn't obey. So Joshua and Israel do obey. This new generation obeys, and this leads to a very interesting encounter in verse 13 through 15. Joshua meets a mysterious soldier, and Joshua asks him a question. Are you for us, or are you for our enemies? Are you for our adversaries? And the soldier looks back and answers, no, wasn't a yes or no question, right? Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he says, no, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. What is the soldier saying? I'm not here to be on anybody's side. I'm here to lead. And Joshua knows immediately who he is dealing with. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus himself. A Christophany is what we call it. And Joshua gets low. What is the lesson of this chapter? Every person in Israel from the lowest private in the army all the way up to the leader was being compelled to recognize their complete dependence on God. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a practical reminder of what God had told Joshua to begin with. Strength and courage would be needed in this conquest. Not in military might, but in obedience. Tell me it didn't take some strength and courage. To stand up in front of 600,000 soldiers and say it's not time to attack. It's time for something else. And it's time to keep the Passover. But verse 13 through 15 would not have happened if Joshua and Israel had not (laughs) obeyed. Obedience to God precedes direction and victory from God. And that's what we see in chapter 6, the story of Jericho. You know the story, so we're not going to dwell on it. Other than just thinking of, think of the strength and obedience that was needed to follow such an unconventional battle plan. Jericho is one of the strongest cities that they are going to face. And we're going to walk around it. But they obey, and they obey down to the T. And what do we find? We find that obedience to God's commands brings victory. We see the opposite in chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins with the ominous word, but, and we hear that Achan has sinned. So in chapter 6, obedience leads to victory. Chapter 7, disobedience leads to defeat. Doesn't matter that AI is smaller than you are. Doesn't matter that AI only has 12,000 men, we find out in the chapter later, and you have 6,000 men. It doesn't matter. You've disobeyed, so you are not going to win. Doesn't matter that Jericho was bigger than you were. You obeyed, so you won. Achan saw, he coveted, he took. Notice that progression. He saw it, he coveted it, he took it. He took of the accursed thing, and notice that even though Achan was the sole sinner, the entire nation is punished because of it. Your sin always affects other people. Israel's defeated by AI. 36 men die, the hearts of the people melt. They melt because of 36 men dying. You would think they would understand, okay, a part of this conquest is going to be to lose some people. But this was more than just a loss to them. They thought, along with Joshua, that God had broken his promise. They had no idea that Achan had done what he did. So Joshua comes up in verse 7 through 9 of chapter 6, and he's basically saying, Lord, why why did you bring us here just for this to happen? What's going to happen to your name? And God comes back and says, listen, what happened to you is not because I transgressed my covenant, you did. Israel has transgressed against the covenant. And until you remove the accursed thing, there's going to be no more victory. So Achan is dealt with, he's he's found, he's punished, along with all of his family, along with all of his possessions. And because of their obedience, they then do gain victory over Ai in chapter 8. We also see Joshua doing the ceremony that was told to us in Deuteronomy chapter 27 where half of the tribes were going to stand on Mount Ebal and half of the tribes were going to stand on Mount Gerizim. And some were going to pronounce blessings and some were going to pronounce cursing. They do that in chapter 8. Now in chapter 9, we're told the story of the Gibeonites. And it's an interesting story for a couple reasons here. The Gibeonites are Canaanite people who disguise themselves as travelers from a far country. They wear old shoes, they bring moldy bread, old wine bottles that are burst, uh, and they desire to make a league with Israel. And Joshua, the Bible says, and Israel take of their victuals, and they make a league with these people without once consenting God. Big no-no. They don't consent God one time in verse 14 through 16. They end up finding out that the Gideonites aren't from a far country. They're actually from about 20 miles away. Oops, because we're not supposed to make an alliance with the Canaanites. We're supposed to kill them. We're supposed to rid them out of the land. But now Joshua stuck in this vow with these heathen people, and he can't go back on it. So instead he puts them to tribute. And what stuck out to me in this story is that God says nothing to Joshua through the entire chapter. He doesn't say anything, good or bad. You shouldn't have done that. Put him to tribute. Don't kill them. Doesn't say anything to him. So a story that would seem to be very important is just kind of given in its basic form. And I'm left wondering why, well, okay, then could we just take it out of the narrative and it really wouldn't add to anything or take away from anything? No, it is certainly to bring forward Israel's disobedience but then why don't we see any punishment to it? But remember what I said at the beginning. Joshua seems to be this book filled with informational stories, but they're all working together for the end. So keep these stories in mind. Keep the Gibeonites and and Jericho and Ai. Keep it all in mind. The next two chapters contain story after story of Israel's victory. Reminders all throughout that God is the one who is giving the victory. Um, there's a time where they're fighting the Moabites. And the Bible says that God sends hailstones. And the hailstones from God killed more people than the Israelite army kills of the Moabites. All throughout it, chapter 10 and 11, the Lord delivered, the Lord fought, the Lord discomfited. God is keeping his promises. God is giving victory, but why? Look in uh, Joshua 11, verse 15. Why is God giving victory? victory. Because as the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so did Moses command Joshua, and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. And at the end of Joshua, so yes, God's keeping his promises, he's giving victory, but it's because Joshua is doing his part to obey. At the end of chapter 11, we see that the land found rest from war. I'm going to go really quickly here, all the way up to chapter 23 and 24, and I am challenging you to read these on your own and do a little bit of a deeper study. So even though the land has been possessed at this time, the Bible says the land has found rest from war. Even though it has been possessed, there are still Canaanites in the land. And God makes that clear in Joshua chapter 13, verse 1. He's basically saying, even though there are still Canaanites in the land, Joshua, you're too old. There's no way you can oversee the conquest of all of it. So what needs to happen is the people just need to have their inheritance divided to them, and they need to go and drive out the Canaanites in their own inheritance. It's time for them to show obedience as well. And chapter 13 through 19 contains the records of all of the tribes' inheritance except for Levi. And in this section, while you read it, write this down in chapters 13 through 19, I want you to notice the detail that is given to the land and the landmarks. But also I want you to notice immediately Israelites' failure to obey. So Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they already have their inheritance, right? So it makes sense to bring up their inheritance and their landmarks first. And immediately we see in chapter 13, verse 13, they expelled not these certain people. I mean, they just would not do it. Now chapter 14 is a good chapter. It's about Caleb and how Caleb gets an inheritance of Hebron. Why? Because he wholly followed the Lord three times in the chapter. The Bible says this happened to Caleb because he wholly followed the Lord. And he takes a place called Kirjah Arba that's named after a giant named Arba. And okay, so in chapter 14, you have Caleb, an 85-year-old man, going up against a giant in a fenced city with high walls of Kirjath Arba and wiping him out because he obeys. In chapter 15, you have Judah, the the, pre, the the kingly tribe, the biggest tribe of them all. And the Bible says they could not drive out the Jebusites. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look in Judges chapter 1, it says the Lord was with them. They, it's not saying that they couldn't drive out because it was impossible. They couldn't drive out the Jebusites because they chose not to obey You run into Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim doesn't even try. Ephraim doesn't even try to drive out the Canaanites. In fact, what they do is they keep the Canaanites and they put them to tribute. Instead of driving out the Canaanites, they keep them around so they can make a little bit extra money. Manasseh, the other half tribe of Manasseh is even worse because the Bible says originally, at first they were too small. They could not drive out the people but then they grow and it got to the point where they could but they still didn't they choose to put them to tribute as well and then they have the nerve to go up to joshua and say our inheritance isn't big enough whoa 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 whoa. what's going on here now chapter 18 you see that the tabernacle is settled at shiloh good step god's presence is permanently among the people, but the rest of chapter 18 has to deal with the other seven tribes that seem to be procrastinating in taking over their inheritance. Joshua has to look at them and say, how long are you going to be slack in God's promise to you? God's promise is there, but you have to act upon it. You have to possess it. And how long are you going to be slack to do that? Get going. Get going and possess your land. And even when they do, they fail to drive out the people. The key to this all, um, chapter twenty is about the cities of ref- refuge. Chapter twenty-one is about the Levites getting their portion. But the key to this all is in Joshua chapter twenty-one, verse forty-five. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came. To pass. Chapter 22 is an interesting story. You have Reuben gathering the half tribe of Manasseh saying goodbye. We're going back over Jordan, and when they cross back over Jordan, the first thing that they do is they build an altar, big altar, tall altar, an altar that you can see from a long ways away. And what you have is the other nine and a half tribes over here thinking, what's that? What's that for? It must be to worship other gods. No, 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 no. So they come up to Shiloh, and they are ready to launch civil war against Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They're hoping for restoration, and you can see that as they talk to him. but, I mean, they are ready to go toe-to-toe. And they remind them, do you remember what happened with Achan and how his sin affected all of us was what happened in Baal Peor, not enough of a lesson when we mixed with the heathen of the land and a plague came among us and what they do is incredible they look at those two and a half tribes and they say listen if the land over there is unclean for you and you do not feel a part come over here share with us we will more than we-, we will more than welcome you to come over and share with us wow that's good it's a good step it's a big misunderstanding The two and a half tribes basically said, no, 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 this wasn't to replace Shiloh, this was to remind us of Shiloh. This wasn't for worship, this was for a witness. We just didn't want the Jordan River to be a divider between us. And we didn't want our children growing up and then your children on the west side saying, well, you're all the way over there, you have no part with us, so we built this as a witness. And everybody's happy, so they named the altar Ed. That is literally the alternate name. And it means witness, okay? But then we're going to come to the finale here in chapters 23 and 24. I skipped over so much, but please read it. Please read it. It's a fantastic book. But really, here is what is is going to come out. In chapter 23, Joshua is giving his farewell. It's a two-part farewell. One part in 23, one part in 24. And he speaks of the past. He talks about the seven years of conquest. He's talking about the present where everything has been divided. And then he talks about the future and how the Canaanites need to be driven out. And in 6 through 10 of chapter 23, he makes it clear this future blessing is dependent on your continued obedience. The promise of success is still contingent upon observing to do. You need to observe to do the law. And the one lesson that we have learned over the past seven years is God keeps his promises. Not only his promises to bless obedience, but also his promises to curse disobedience. But it's your choice. Just as he won't punish you unless you choose to disobey, he won't bless you unless you choose to obey. What is your choice. And chapter 24 reveals Joshua's famous line, right? Uh, uh, Joshua 24, 15. And in in this chapter, he reviews the entire storyline. Look at this. It's incredible. In Joshua 24, verse 2 through 4, he talks about Genesis. In 5 through 7, he talks about Exodus to Leviticus. In 8 through 10, he talks about Numbers and Deuteronomy. And in verses 11 through 13, he talks about... Joshua, and in those, the events of Joshua, and in those 12 verses from 2 to 13, there are 17 pronouns referring to God. God did this, God did that, God. The whole recap emphasized the truth that everything great about Israel's past and everything bright about Israel's future was because of one person God. God. And then what he says is choose you this day whom ye will serve but before he says that look what he says if it seem evil unto you in verse 15 if it seem evil unto you what was the choice given to adam and eve in the garden to trust and obey what god said was good and abstain from what god said was evil Now, here in Joshua 24, 2,500 years later, God is presenting man with the same choice. He has proven himself. Serving me and obeying me, good. Disobeying me and forgetting me, evil. So Joshua says, if it seems evil to you to serve him, that's your choice. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. After all that God has done, if it seems evil to you, nah. But the people agree. They agree. They say, no, uh, uh, God forbid that we should serve anybody else but the Lord. He's the one who chose us and guided us, preserved us, delivered us, provided for us, fulfilled everything to us. We are going to serve him. And look at what Joshua's reaction is to them. Look at Joshua's response in verse 19. You can't. We are going to serve the Lord, Joshua. We're going to obey him. We're going to make that choice. And he comes back and says, ye cannot. And the book ends with the burial of Joshua, the burial of Eleazar, the bones of Joseph. But what Joshua brings out in verse 14 through 20 is not only the culmination of the whole book, but it's the key to the rest of the Old Testament. So we're going to spend just about a little bit more time here. God keeps his promises. These promises must be possessed. They aren't possessed by worldly might or wisdom, but by simple obedience to his commands. That choice belongs to us. Choose you this day. That choice belongs to us. But the problem is, sinful man doesn't choose to obey. Even when God makes it so simple, eventually we always fail. Think about it. Choose you this day after all that the Lord has done for them? Of course the Israelites are going to say, we choose to serve the Lord. Of course you are. But Joshua comes back and says, you can't. And he wasn't saying that to discourage them. He's saying that to remind them of a fundamental problem. Man has the utter inability and insufficiency to obey the law of God. We are completely unable to obey the law in its entirety. And Joshua's bringing that out. And they would all have to look back just on recent events and realize he's right, Achan. The Gibeonites. See, all of these stories are making sense now. The Gibeonites' laziness to possess the land. The fact that when they do possess the land, they're making choices to keep them there for tribute instead of getting rid of them. And what we're going to see from the book of Judges really throughout the rest of the Old Testament is man's complete inability to follow God's law. And every once in a while, we're gonna be introduced to a really incredible character, and he seems to be doing really well, but then there's gonna be a, a huge failure, and he comes crashing down, because man is unable. Sinful man is just unable. The law was impossible to keep. All that the law did was show man's need for a savior, And that is why God, throughout all of this, he saw that. He saw man's inability, and that is why he is going to let nothing stop him from keeping his promises to provide a Savior. To provide Jesus so that man can be given a new heart, so that they can obey. Perfect obedience cannot come without perfect love, and nobody knew what perfect love was until Jesus Christ came. And this is where the book of Joshua becomes so beautiful. Joshua is more than just a book of possession. It's a book of restoration. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God has been orchestrating events to lead people to this time. When Adam disobeyed, access to God's presence was lost, they were banished from the Garden of Eden, sin and death entered into the world, and that is why God's promise to Israel contained what it contained. The fulfillment to that promise would in every way restore what was lost in the garden. He was going to give them access to God's presence again. He was going to give them a place of rest and service again. He was going to one day bring somebody to overcome the power of sin. And that was going to come through the descendant of Abraham's family. And in this book of Joshua, you see visible steps being taken by God in every single one of those promises. One of his promises was to have access to God's presence while the tabernacle, permanent place in Shiloh. Big step. One of the promises was a place of rest and service while you're standing in the promised land right now. And one day, the power (coughs) of sin is going to be destroyed Because a Messiah is going to come. And one of the great, 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 great grandmothers is a lady named Rahab. Wow. So what does it mean for us today? Well, first of all, remember, all of those promises were fulfilled because of obedience. Rahab was saved because of obedience. The tabernacle was established because of obedience. Canaanite was conquered because of obedience. Here's what it means for us: as God brought out Egypt, uh, uh, Israel out of Egypt to live in Canaan, God has brought us out of sin to live an abundant life. Right. Yeah. And as Israel could only prosper in Canaan through obedience, we can only prosper in our life by obedience to God's word. And if we're honest, that could be a fearful endeavor. And that is why, along with the Israelites, we often fail. Instead of driving out the sin in our life, we keep it. How many times have we kept something in our life that we know we're supposed to get rid of, but we keep it around because it pays us a little bit of tribute? The promise of victory and success that was given to Joshua, it's still extended to us, but it it is still dependent upon our obedience, and that is going to take some strength and courage because this life is filled with conflicts and troubles, but the way to find victory is not through worldly strength or worldly wisdom, but by simple obedience to God's word. And this is where all the stories of Joshua begin to, makes sense. They all support this truth. We have to be strong and courageous to obey, even when obedience seems absurd, like walking up to a swollen Jordan River. We obey, we choose to obey, we need strength and courage to choose to obey, even when it seems inconvenient, like keeping the Passover and observing circumcision right before you're about to go to attack an army. We obey even when it seems foolish, like marching around Jericho, even when it seems unnecessary. Oh, this is a, like AI, oh, this is an issue I can take care of myself. I don't need to obey the Lord. No, we obey. We obey even when it brings enemies, like the alliances that come with the Canaanite kings. We obey even though it's difficult. Yes, driving out the Canaanites in your life is going to be difficult, but it's not a matter of strength. It's not a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of obedience. If Caleb can conquer Kirjath Barba, you can conquer the Canaanites in your life as well. We obey even when it seems unfruitful. You know, Caleb waited 45 years before he he reaped benefits of his obedience. We obey even though it may divide a family, like what happened with the altar ed. We don't like to make this decision, but if you are choosing to go against God, we're standing with him. But we need strength and courage to obey because obedience to God is always worth it. Amen. It affects our children. Yeah. They're gonna ask us one day, why do we do what we do? Let me tell you what God has done for us. Yeah. Amen. It affects the lost. You're gonna have some people that you would never think the Lord would say, like a Rahab, come up to you and say, I know that what you have in your life is real. And I want a piece of it. It affects, it it brings supernatural victory. Nothing in this book would have happened without God. But obedience always brings that victory, not because it gets God on our side, but because it puts us on His. That's a good choice to make. A God, to be on the side of a God who makes incredible promises and keeps them all, even though we may not understand it all and definitely, though, we don't deserve of Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.